Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Hawa Allen, author of the eye-opening book, Insurrection, Rebellion, Civil Rights, and the Paradoxical State of Black Citizenship, which examines the complex history and application of the 1807 Insurrection Act. Hawa Allen, welcome to That Said. Thank you for having me. So, I always like to start these interviews by asking the author to tell us about themselves, their brief biography. And if you could indulge me, I would appreciate it. Okay, well, I guess I'm of the sort of bridge ilk of the bridge and tunnel crowd. So I did grow up on Long Island. I was born in New York City uh, and raised in Stony Brook on the North Shore. So while it's a sort of college town, and you know, given that's close to SUNY Stony Brook, it was sort of an enclave for sort of mostly white people who are sort of fled uh, the city at, at, or, you know, either they or ancestors or, or parents had fled uh, New York City to the suburbs, right? So while there was a smattering of Asians and Black people where I grew up, anyone non-white was essentially a sort of small minority. And so, you know, in the book, I do describe myself as being the proverbial only Black kid in the classroom. But moving forward, I do have a law degree. I am a lawyer, and but I also have a writing background. And um, prior to law school, was a reporter, more so in the trade presses. So in the end, this book kind of uh, brings together a lot of my sort of interests and professional sort of experiences to bear to personal narrative and my personal background as it might relate to some of the other topics that I discuss. So, because it seems in the book, you are weaving your professional life as a lawyer with your personal life as the proverbial only Black kid. And you do a very nice job, I think, of weaving this narrative style of personal reflections on lived experiences with historic narrative. Was that an intentional style or to just seem to be the way in which the book most easily flowed? Well, what's interesting is that I did a lot of the research that is reflected in the book. And just to back up, it has to do with the Insurrection Act of 1807, which authorized the president to deploy federal troops and or federalize the National Guard in response to domestic violence or insurrections, right? So I had done a lot of research on this act and the incidents to which it was used to respond. And, you know, those were reflected in a legal article that I had published prior to even thinking about this book proposal. But my editor at Norton, Elaine Mason, was the one who actually suggested this hybrid style, sort of incorporating personal narrative with the legal history of the Insurrection Act. I believe it's just because in some of the other writing that I've done, I have sort of use that kind of hybrid style going back and forth between more sort of analytical type of writing and more sort of literary and sort of memoristic sort of personal reflection. I guess, you know, nowadays you you would call it creative nonfiction. So it seemed that she was convinced that's something that I could do. And then she suggested that I take the same approach to this book. So, and I think that, you know, the personal narrative and some of the sort of philosophical and psychological rifts that are sort of interspersed with this legal history they kind of add another dimension to the material by addressing themes that might arise from these sort of insurrection-related incidents and putting my voice sort of in direct conversation with them. And I think hopefully ushering the reader into the material in a way that seems a little bit more friendly, less daunting, and also in a way that doesn't necessarily posit me as the official authority on all things that are being discussed, but rather as someone who is sort of wrestling with the material and trying to make sense of it through my own experiences. You write, considering both history generally and your own story through the theme of insurrection, you came to recognize patterns and how they repeat themselves. This, you write, is the closest thing to truth that you have been able to divine. Right. Yes. Pattern recognition. (laughs) So, I mean, do you want me to talk a little bit more about the pattern? Sure. And then what I'd like to do is back up a bit and talk about 
the Insurrection Act itself and definitions under it, and then we'll get to the precursors of it because you do take us through the whole history of this in wonderful detail. Okay. So basically the pattern that I found just as a sort of an overarching summary is that although this act, which, you know, frankly, not too many people had really heard about until perhaps the summer of 2020, when Donald Trump threatened to invoke it in response to the George Floyd sort of uprisings. And I think he identified New York and Minneapolis in particular as places where he, he thought that sort of deployment was, was warranted. But in fact, in looking at the history of the act, I saw that although the act itself might have been obscure, the incidents that uh, it was used to respond to are very well known, ranging anywhere from the Los Angeles riots in 1992, after Rodney King, the, the cops who were involved with the Rodney King beating were acquitted of certain charges, and the riots that occurred in Baltimore, D.C., and Chicago after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, the Detroit riots of 1943 and 67, and then, you know, even going further back, there is a link of the Insurrection Act to the suppression of the Nat Turner Rebellion, right? So we have this sort of theme of riots or so-called race riot, for the most part, involving African-Americans. And then on the other hand, there were a couple of incidents during the civil rights movement in particular, uh, where the Insurrection Act was used to desegregate public schools in Alabama, Arkansas, and Mississippi, right? And then again, to enforce the rights of civil rights protesters to march from Selma to Montgomery. So there was this interesting vacillation that I saw of the act being used on the one hand to suppress so-called race riots, and on the other hand, to enforce the civil rights of African-Americans. In some instances, you can say that suppressing race riots and enforcing the civil rights of, of African-Americans are sort of two sides of the same coins, depending on what incidents you're looking at. Although when a, a state governor is the one who is the quote-unquote insurrectionist and is not, uh, in the case of desegregating public schools, um, enforcing you know, the Brown versus Board Supreme Court decision and using state uh, troops to preserve the Southern way of life. It's interesting that that's not considered to be a race riot, so to speak, considering all the unrest and drama that unfolds from these kinds of activities. Um, but nonetheless, it was interesting to me that given that the use of a domestic federal military power at the federal level is a fairly rare occurrence, and the Insurrection Act is, represents a sort of extraordinary exercise of of federal power, that there is this pattern that emerged where you see a, a linkage to the rights of citizenship of Black people in America and a sort of a concurrent history of those rights alongside these sort of flare-ups that, you know, one could call it, were proclaimed as insurrections along the way. That's so interesting because, save for a few exceptions like Hurricane Katrina, which you could argue perhaps does fit the, the pattern that you've just described. Race seems to be at the heart of the invocation of the Insurrection Act. Right. So let's just for the sake of defining terms, let's have the lawyer in you tell us <laughs> what is the Insurrection Act of 1807 why was it passed? And then let's talk about definitions mm. under the Insurrection Act or perhaps lack of definitions under the right. Insurrection Act. So essentially, it was passed in 1807 under the administration of Thomas Jefferson. It allows the president, again, to, to either deploy sort of federal troops like the army, those kind of uh, sort of active duty sort of federal troops domestically to suppress unrest or federalize the state National Guard, right? So the state National Guard is usually under uh, the command of the governor of a given state, although there are exceptions where they can be uh, sort of deputized under federal command, for example, when they're deployed overseas to engage in a foreign war. But in this case, the Insurrection Act does allow the, the executive, essentially the president, to sort of commandeer state National Guard troops under the, the command of the executive in order to suppress domestic unrest. I will say that there is a bit of a caveat because uh, it's not quite as simple as that. 
there are two instances where the act can be invoked. One is um, the request of the state governor. And in that case, once the request is made, the president can honor that request or not. And then that's an authorized um, deployment. And the other instance is unilaterally by the president. And the condition there is that there would have to have been a determination that whatever unrest or domestic violence or that's occurring on the ground sort of is depriving or threatens to deprive the constitutional rights of people subject to this unrest. And the state is unwilling or unable to intervene, right? So the act was, there's no legislative history of the Insurrection Act, so there's no definitive record of why it was passed. That said, it has a couple of antecedents, and those are the Militia Acts of 1792, which effectively, under which, you know, Congress delegated its authority under the Constitution uh, to call forth the militia in order to suppress uh, invasions or repel invasions or suppress insurrections to the president, right? So that's that was the Insurrection Act is sort of a subsequent sort of iteration of the initial Militia Act of uh, 1792. There were two of them. The other one basically conscripted all white men of a certain age range who were able-bodied to form the militia of the several states. Yeah. And the one additional element is here in the District of Columbia, where we are a colony and not a state, mm-hmm. um, and we have no state governor per right. se. The president yeah. has the authority to call it out unilaterally, which is, as you mentioned, that which former President Trump thought about in response to the Black Lives Matter protests, and which everyone wonders why it wasn't rapidly invoked in relationship to the January 6th insurrection powers the president had and where he wanted it in one case and didn't want it in another case, which again speaks to the theme of how race underpins the application of this act. What's interesting, you're right, is that because there is no definition of insurrection in the act. It's really sort of in the eye of the beholder. What is an insurrection? And you're right, I think, importantly, that its invocation tells us more about the invoker, perhaps, than the events as to which it is invoked. So can you talk a little bit about that, please? Right. Because, of course, there's a textbook definition of the word insurrection, a violent uprising against, you know, the government or some other authority. Um, But in terms of the act itself, it was drafted and enacted in 1807. It's not like the sort of verbose and largely technical legislation we would have now, which would have tons of definitions and exceptions and various other sort of bureaucratic uh, conditions. It's essentially written in a rather sparse uh, manner. So the word insurrection, in a way, just ends up becoming uh, what the executive or maybe perhaps the state governor, if they're making this request of the executive, sees, right? <laughs> so it's a one interesting example, like we talked about the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020, when Donald Trump threatened to invoke the act. I know we talk a lot, we sort of, uh, we compare his willingness to do so in the context of Black Lives Matter protests and not in the context of the January 6th insurrection. However, even in that instance in and of itself, there were at least a thousand reports of police brutality and instances of like local police using tear gas. And there's there are other facets of like a sort of militarized police response to the protests. And in theory, Trump could have easily channeled Lyndon B. Johnson's response to Bloody Sunday and invoke the act to enforce the First Amendment rights of the Black Lives Matter protesters to assemble, right? So this this sort of layer of perception, and as you said, like the insurrection being in the eye of the beholder, it kind of recalls a classical definition or intentions of critical race theory, not the sort of school board version that the current culture war over, but rather the study of how laws can be applied disparately across uh, different racial categories, despite it being technically race neutral on its face or facially neutral, right? 
Um, so I would say that the Insurrection Act in particular is one statute that sort of highlights the biases and inclinations of those who would endeavor to interpret it, right? Absolutely. And you write, what has been interpreted to constitute an insurrection is a mirror reflecting the ongoing and often bloody battle to fully incorporate Black Americans into the citizenry of the United States. A struggle as seen in this light that appears more like an open-ended civil war than the history of progress. Yes, I do say that. And it's one of those those things you can say when you write the introduction after you finished <laughs> writing the rest of the book. <laughs> because uh, at that point, my sort of nagging sort of displeasure with this sort of sanitized uh, presentation of African-American history being one of quote-unquote progress I felt that I had sufficient background evidence through this review of these Insurrection Act incidents to basically make the case that what we have considered progress really has been, in effect, a sort of series of concessions in this ongoing war. So while it's clear that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were enacted after the Civil War, right, it's less known, you know, for example, that the Civil Rights Act of 1954 was passed soon after George Wallace's famous stand in the schoolhouse door. And the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed soon after the Bloody Sunday incident on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And obviously that led to the deployment of federal troops to enforce the civil rights protesters to march from Selma to Montgomery. We've talked a bit about the Insurrection Act of 1807, and I'm going to turn in a minute to its precursors and the history that gave rise to it. But one of the through lines in your book is fear and how fear manifested itself throughout all of these militia acts and insurrection acts and, and other acts. But it was a fear, white fear in particular. It was a fear that was irrespective of the reality on the ground. It was a catastrophizing thought process that provoked a reaction that situation on the ground didn't require. So can you talk about fear and white fear and the overreaction is what I'll call it, uh, to it and how these were manifested in laws and slave patrols and the Fugitive Slave Act and the like? Right. Because the thing is, there can be this notion, especially when you're looking back on incidents in hindsight, that people are taking actions for purely logical and rational reasons. And uh, although we know that's not necessarily true in our day-to-day realities, I wanted to really emphasize that in exploring these various historical incidents and thinking about them as sort of expressing being influenced by or somehow motivated by underlying emotions, right? So I contemplate the notion of the fear of insurrection, slave insurrection in particular, and how outsized it seemed to me as a reader of this history, given the fact that the slave system was forced by, you know, the armed backing of the state, you know, civilians required to engage in slave patrols. Every day, civilians were effectively deputized to police the, you know, the movement and assembly of, you know, Black people, whether they were enslaved or not. And you mentioned the Fugitive Slave Act as a, as an, as an example, where there was a sort of a sort of codified sort of deputization of civilians or the posse uh, to sort of be involved in returning or identifying uh, fugitives who had fled from a slaveholding states back to those jurisdictions, right? And what's actually also interesting about that is there was a point made by Winthrop Jordan in his book, White Over Black, that the laws were themselves were not the slave codes, right? They were not directed at the enslaved persons themselves, although their movements were being sort of policed and restricted. And, you know, they had to, you know, engage in a variety of conditions in order to assemble or, you know, maybe have a show of pass in order to move from one place to another, right? The laws were directed at white citizens to sort of enforce those codes, right? So he was saying that the, the laws were not drafted so that the black slaves who were the subject of the, the laws would be addressed, but rather the white citizens who would be tasked with enforcing those codes, right? As a role as uh, in, in surveillance, right? And um, 
uh, enforcers. So in any event, so even with respect to this fear and, you know, the slave slave revolts, the enslaved population also had their own fears of even uprising against this system. And which is why you see time and again in this history that to the extent any of these slave insurrections got off to any kind of start, they would soon be foiled because an informant trying to avoid the inevitable retribution of being deemed a co-conspirator would kind of basically give up the entire plan. So with the entire antebellum society organized around the suppression of slave uh, uprisings, the sphere kind of seemed to me similar to the mounting anxiety of the narrator of Edgar Allan Poe's Telltale Heart, where he acknowledges having committed murder, but then starts to hear the heartbeat of his victim through the floorboards, right? So you talk about the catastrophizing and the outsized fear, but that in and of itself can come from the sort of acknowledgement that they're of sort of guilt, either by uh, complicity or actual commission, and this sort of anxiety about some sort of retribution coming their way, notwithstanding the sort of architecture of enforcement that is sort of tightening the screws against that very impossibility ever occurring. Well, that's right. And what you see is the fear of white slave owners, masters, to use the the language of uh, white over black um, from Winthrop Jordan, almost in some sense relying on the psychology of the slave for the master to continue to assert his authority, the slave having to accept the master's version of truth in this Hegelian master-slave dialect. So can we talk a little bit about that? Right. So uh, the master-slave dialectic, I was very interested in this proposition, and it was explained in detail in an epilogue to Brian David's book, which I also refer to for this research. But essentially, there's a sense that there is an encounter between two people, right? The victor of that encounter, meaning the one who is through whatever circumstances is able to impose his sense of the world upon the other person and sort of subjugate them. That person becomes the Lord and the the person who is then subjugated and somehow dependent upon the perception that the Lord has of him for his, his own survival is then becomes the bondsman, right? So, however, there is this dynamic that Hegel describes where the bondsman starts off essentially having to adopt the worldview of the Lord in order to survive in this world in which he has been subjugated, right? Because his survival depends on that Lord sort of, you know, not taking any retributive action against him or in other ways sort of exploiting the the sort of power dynamic in a way that's not in the bondsman's favor. So that actually sort of generates a sense of empathy, right? Seeing the world through the eyes of this person, notwithstanding the fact that they are actually subjugating you but then he talks about this process where the bondsman and he sort of applies this directly to labor and this idea that through being forced to engage in labor right not on your own behalf but on this you know this lord's behalf you nonetheless develop a sort of sense of self-mastery and a sense of confidence in your ability to sort of shape the world around you which he hegel then argues leads to sort of an emergence of courage over the fear of the the Lord and any actions they would take against you. And he talks about, he describes this process as being one that could very well lead to taking a rebellious action and sort of fighting for your own liberation, notwithstanding this power dynamic. However, the flip side is that while the Lord nonetheless has this sort of crude power over the bondsmen through the whatever architecture of of enslavement, I suppose, that they that they have in place, they are, number one, not able to see the world through the eyes of the bondsman because it's there's no need to, right? There's no empathy. But number two, in a way, their self-conception and sense of self is dependent upon the bondsman's enslavement and, and subjugation and purported inferiority. So even though the bondsman perhaps is in a condition to sort of rise out of the subjugation and perhaps move toward liberation, the Lord is still codependent on the subjugation of the bondsman for the Lord's sense of self and safety. Right. And the way it would play out is that the freedom 
of the enslaved would, in the mind of the slave master, imply the death of the master. And so the freedom was perceived by the slave holder as their death. And, And we see that playing out today, where the notion of a minority white population is so disconcerting to that white, you know, soon to be 2030, I guess, soon to be minority, that the actions that are being undertaken, whether they're in the form of um, suppression of voting rights or suppression of civil rights or other things, is playing out this dialectic that we've just talked about because it's seen by white people as the end of their reign. They will no longer be sitting on top of the pyramid, the power pyramid. Right. And to add to that, you know, and getting back to the theme of fear. So if we go back to that sort of antebellum period and this, the outsized fear of slave insurrection, right? Underpinning that as well was that the enslaved person would not necessarily be seeking, you know, liberation and equality, but rather revenge and an aim to flip the power dynamic in their favor, right? So from the perspective, I guess, of this sort of white, fearful person we're talking about right now, this sort of construct that we're using to discuss this, and thinking about the master-slave dialect, the supposed lack of empathy that Hegel sort of postulated that, you know, the Lord in this sort of dynamic displays vis-a-vis the bondsman might sort of limit the imagination when it comes to thinking about how non-white peoples could just be seeking to live their lives unmolested on equal terms, as opposed to seeking to essentially do to quote unquote them (laughs) what they had suffered, right? And that I I like the sort of telltale heart analogy, right? Because that, I think that's a good sort of uh, literary analogy for like that sort of sense of anxiety. And even during the antebellum times, on the one hand, yes, there was a concern about the number of enslaved people in the population, because even though the more enslaved people there were for the slaveholder, the, the more money that he could make right? So it was like an investment, it was an asset, it was property. But at the same time, in the enslaved person's capacity as a human being, there was then the threat that the more populous they were, the more likely there was going to be a, be a slave insurrection. And in a way, it's it's hard not to see, as you said, the, the relation to what we're dealing with now with this, you know, great uh, replacement theory, you know, that equates the number of non-white people in the United States with a loss of white political power, right? It's like there's a zero sum game that is continually used to frame the sort of, you know, emergence or uh, expansion in numbers of non-white people in this country. You said, well, that to the masters, they could only imagine a motive of revenge because that was their mindset based on the way they would expect that they would behave under the circumstances. So they, were, you know, an oppressive lot and behaved in a unacceptable way. And they thought, well, if the tables were turned, what would I do but seek revenge? And therefore, going back to the theme of fear, I better be even more oppressive for once there is freedom, there will be revenge. And as you say, that was really not the mindset of the enslaved, the mindset of the enslaved was just leave me alone. You know, <laughs> let, let, me, let me live in peace. You know, someone said to me once, it's interesting that in the history of the United States, there never was a black Ku Klux Klan. Hmm, that's Which, very interesting. Right? Uh, of any group of people who like sort of were entitled to a, a Ku Klux Klan, not that anyone would want that. Those people who were so... Uh, oppressed by society would have the right to say now it's our turn but that that was never the response the the response was always just let me live with human dignity in peace free from your knee on my neck right exactly and but then again 
that's where perception comes into play over and over again, because even claims of say, even self-defense are, can be reframed given this, these larger anxieties as aggression, right? So it's a very sort of this dynamic. And what's interesting about looking at this history, because through the lens of the Insurrection Act, I was able to cover a lot of ground historically, starting from, you know, as you said, like the 1600s going into, you know, modern day, like basically last year, <laughs> two years ago. But looking at the themes is particularly these sort of this sort of emotional content and using that as sort of the thematic tie between these, you know, incidents and my personal history. I could see that this pattern continued to emerge over and over again in different guises, right? This, the same anxieties, but, you know, maybe different characters, which was pretty fascinating. The other emotion, if it's an emotion that you speak a lot of, which I'd like you to speak to now, is dissonance. Mm-hmm. You ask, you know, the question of how can there be people of the cloth showing up at lynchings. How is it that people maintain these discordant beliefs in their head at the same time and were able to sort of live with themselves and live in society? So in addition to fear and anger and hope, there was this dissonance that existed throughout the history that we're looking at of uh, the insurrections and its application to a modern society. Right. Yeah, so I, in the chapter where I discuss, you know, certain instances in the Civil War, in particular, two Insurrection Act instances, one is for certain is uh, the Bleeding Kansas event, right, where you had the border ruffians from Missouri and, you know, basically intimidating Kansas residents into voting through the popular sovereignty system to make Kansas a free state, eventually, the the then territory of Kansas a free state. And then before that, I would say when Lincoln sent troops to uh, Fort Sumter, that it I think is arguably an Insurrection Act invocation. Uh, the, proclam- the language of the proclamation is not entirely clear to me, but it, it's not entirely clear to me that there was any other authorization that was being invoked. But in any event, I brought up cognitive dissonance in that chapter where I generally discussed the U.S. Civil War. It's because I found it a useful psychological frame to consider the conflict between one's beliefs and uh, behavior and one's attitudes, particularly if you, you claim as an American to believe in freedom and equality. But then in terms of your behavior, if you're participating in or, or complicit with then enslavement or later on segregation or whatever, and then perhaps you have certain racist attitudes, right? So these conflicts are very uncomfortable for the psyche. And the psyche is going to devise strategies to reconcile them. So uh, often it, it happens automatically and, and without much conscious effort. And usually it's resolved by changing your attitude about whatever your contrary beliefs and behaviors are, right? So in the context of then enslavement, you could say you could acknowledge the, the conflict between the belief in freedom and equality or the purported belief in freedom and equality and the sort of behavior of slavery uh, by maybe adopting a a paternalistic attitude, like saying, you know, oh, the enslaved are too childlike and dependent, take care of themselves. Or you can develop an attitude of superiority. So there are various ways in which these conflicts can be resolved, but they have to be resolved one way or the other. Otherwise, the tension will sort of of rend the psyche apart, right? Because it's too uncomfortable to live with it. So I, I would think that in order for the enslaved to be convincingly defined and treated as property, it would probably be easier for white citizens then at the time to just decide that they were just bestial or savage in order to justify their treatment. So uh, I feel like the framework of cognitive dissonance is really very important to consider the various narratives that are used to sort of frame certain events in ways that protect, I would say, the, the unity of the psyche, right? In the same way, I guess, during the Civil War, we were trying to protect the the unity of the states right so we're trying to protect the union so it's as if the external and the internal start to sort of reflect each other in that way and people have asked routinely in modern times how can the christian right uh, the evangelical christian population 
have these devout religious beliefs, yet in practice, the way they behave, who they vote for and, and how they interact with both non-believers and people of color is discordant with uh, with the teachings, yes, the <laughs> and the teachings. purported beliefs, exactly. And I think you reflect on it, that they come somehow to rationalize, whether it is by referring to the enslaved as property or as children, you know, some other construct that gets them off the hook. Right, exactly. I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the history that precedes the Insurrection Act. And we talked in the earlier part of the interview about how race seems to underpin a lot of what was the precursor to the Insurrection Act and then the application of the Insurrection Act itself. But I'd like you to talk a little bit about how after the Civil War and the beginning of Reconstruction under Grant, he really did a, a very substantial job in wiping out the Klan who were terrorizing it. And he did so, in a sense, through the Insurrection Act or Insurrection Act equivalents to uh, bring federal troops into the South to quash the KKK, which he effectively did. During the Grand Administration, the KKK was pretty much wiped out. So let's talk a little bit about Grant's invocation of the Insurrection Act as sort of a a positive application. Mm -hmm. And then we see the reaction to it. You can talk a little bit about the uh, Compromise of 1877 and the passage of the Posse Comitatus Act, which is sort of the the flip side of that. It's an interesting history. Right. So during that time, and I guess we, we generally think of presidential reconstruction under Andrew Johnson after Lincoln was assassinated. And then we have radical reconstruction, right, under proposed by the radical Republicans in Congress. And, but there was actually a, another, and the, I would say that the radical reconstruction period was legally sort of reflected in the passage of the Reconstruction Acts, right, which allowed for the federal military administration of the South. But then I would say there's sort of this, this third, and from my perspective, frankly, underexplored aspect of re- Reconstruction. It's exactly this administration under Ulysses S. Grant, where the KKK in particular effectively defined as insurrectionist for legal purposes, not specifically under the Insurrection Act, although it was, was invoked in, uh, initially in one instance to respond to that sort of clan violence. But it led to the enactment of the Enforcement Acts, and there were three of them. They essentially authorized federal enforcement of the 14th and 15th Amendments. So, you know, they allowed for, you know, I'm just going to talk about them sort of in broad brushes, all three, you know, generally together, but allowed for the federal supervision of elections and imposed criminal violations on people who thwarted the exercise of the right to vote. And the Enforcement Act of 1871 in particular was enacted to respond to the terrorist violence of the KKK. And it basically authorized the president to dispatch troops and state militia to suppress their insurrection or rebellion. So on the one hand, in those acts, you know, being passed and then ultimately being used over a series of years thereafter by Grant to sort of try to suppress that sort of clan violence or, you know, the violence of these sort of other sort of uh, white paramilitary uh, groups um, that was also coincident with the sort of expansion of Republican political power in the South and the expansion of Negro suffrage and political participation at that time, initially, that is. So did you want to talk about? Well, and so so Grant, Grant passes under the Grant administration, there's the KKK Act of 1871, which are used to Break up the clan. Your next book, I'll give you a topic for your <laughs> next book, which could be a biography of Amos Ackerman. Mm-hmm. Amos, yeah. Amos Ackerman was really the first attorney general that had powers consistent with current attorney generals. And it was Ackerman enforcing the KKK Acts of 1871 that really broke up the clan. And he's unknown in history. 
But so here you have the, my proposition was, here you have the, the KKK Act of 1871, which is essentially the Insurrection Act in another, uh, in another in, form, exactly. Another form. And the federal troops are in the South enforcing what was the intention of the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendment. But then you get to 1877 and there's this election between Samuel Tilden and Rutherford B. Hayes. And a compromise is made, I think, in which Rutherford B. Hayes becomes the president, even though Tilden, I think, sort of maybe had more votes or more electoral college votes. But the condition was that this Posse Comitatus Act was passed. And that Posse Comitatus Act prohibited the domestic deployment of federal troops to enforce the law. And so this deal is made. Grant is completely wiping out the Klan and bringing to life what the 13th and 14th, 15th Amendments were intended to do. Then they make a deal to retain the presidency, Rutherford B. Hayes, and will we'll essentially will make it illegal right. to bring federal troops into the South to enforce the Klan Acts or the Insurrection Acts. And that's what I wanted you to talk a little bit about. Well, what's interesting is that, so technically, uh, that, yes, the Posse Comitatus Act, that was the intent for the sort of Southern sort of officials is just to, like, let's get this federal military sort of administration of our lives. Let's cut it off and get the, the federal military, you know, out of the South. However, there was a, a certain proviso there where it's like, unless uh, otherwise authorized by Congress, right? So the Insurrection Act certainly survived as an ongoing exception to this blanket rule, right? So the Insurrection Act certainly is it's active currently and it, it was used thereafter. But I think in a way, the passage of, of the Posse Comitatus Act certainly uh, sort of added to the overall, what I, what I noted in reading this history, what it seemed like the reluctance of the executive, of presidents to actually engage in federal military intervention. They would typically frame, you know, any subsequent deployments as a, a deployment of last resort or something that was an unfortunate sort of dis, you know, sort of use of federal power that is, is quite exceptional. Like there were, it's as if there was like a sort of implicit apology in having to sort of engage in this kind of, these kind of actions. And that's, that was the case after the Posse Comitatus Act, certainly, but also to some extent beforehand, because even with Ulysses S. Grant and those Enforcement Act sort of invocations, first with the Insurrection Act, and then subsequently with the Enforcement Acts after they were passed on spe- specifically to the Klan, I saw that there was a reluctance even then to really get involved at that level through these sort of proclamations of insurrection. And even some of these major sort of historical massacres that were sort of uh, kind of involved in these, or or might have eventually prompted these uh, sort of invocations by Grant, there was oftentimes like a a lag of a few months, right? So there you could see the sort of begrudging, foot dragging even there, despite the fact that he did ultimately act in favor of the rights of, you know, African-Americans in favor of the support of uh, Negro elected uh, officials to remain in, you know, in their capacity. Right. But what you see, of course, is that after the passage of the Posse Comitatus Act and the removal of federal troops, the number of black elected officials that predate that um, exactly. falls off precipitously as the Klan is resurrected. Exactly. Right. So, you know, that it was the end of, of Reconstruction that signaled the end of Reconstruction. And then, of course, like in when I look at the, the history, I don't see any insurrection invocation for some time, right? There's like a, a rather long time lag after the sort of the burst of activity during the uh, the Grand There is, well, because as we've talked thematically, the Insurrection Act precursors to it, the KKK Act, all involve race. And there wasn't really a president during this time or a governor 
during this time that was wholeheartedly working to ensure the rights of the enslaved and then the formerly enslaved. It was like, as you say, a begrudging recognition of the need to do it under the circumstances that presented exactly. at the time. Exactly. And you see that in its modern invocation, you talk a lot about some of the modern uses, Dwight Eisenhower in the desegregation of the schools in Arkansas and uh, John Kennedy in the desegregation of University of Mississippi and University of Alabama and Tuskegee High School. So can we talk a little bit about that? Because I think, again, it's sort of the flip side. You have the the, the yin and the yang of it, which is one hand to put down slave rebellions, on the other hand, to enforce the rights of the formerly enslaved. The two you described as the the opposite sides of the same coin. Right. So there were some other incidents that I, I do mention in the book that kind of occurred in between, say, the this sort of end of, of Reconstruction and going into the Civil Rights Movement. But it is certainly the Civil Rights Movement that really highlights the sort of clear use of the Insurrection Act to enforce the civil rights of African Americans, right? And as well, it, there's also this sort of representation of the civil rights protesters themselves as sort of like highly conscious actors in this sort of political theater, essentially as part of their tactics, trying to force the hand of the federal government to respond, right? Knowing that their their mere presence in these places where they were quote unquote not supposed to be would instigate a crisis in a given Southern city. And then that crisis would be sort of internationally embarrassing for the United States, which would then lead the federal government to sort of assert some sense of responsibility or accountability in order to intervene to suppress these incidents. So with the Little Rock Nine, that involved uh, Orville Faubus, the Arkansas governor. And I think what was most interesting to me, apart from just this pattern that emerged, particularly with respect to desegregation of public schools and the rights of civil rights protesters to march from Selma to Montgomery was these sort of images of these performances. On the one hand, like I said, of the civil rights protesters themselves, you know, so for example, the Little Rock Nine, they just didn't happen to go to the school. They were recruited by the local chapter of the NAACP and in order to be the first to attempt to desegregate the high school. And they were involved in counseling sessions and to help ensure that they could sort of maintain a very composed demeanor under stress. So, you know, you have that famous image of Elizabeth Eckford, you know, she has her sunglasses, she's wearing her sort of white dress, you know, she's walking very straight-faced by this crowd, essentially a white mob that is sort of screaming and sort of their faces are contorted in anger, right? So you have these these performances of the the civil rights protesters to sort of remain calm and not to re- to react, you know, of course, to remain nonviolent. But then you have these performances of the sort of staunch segregationist governors, not just Fabus himself, who like, but also Wallace, both of them started off their political careers mostly as moderates, right? But when they saw the backlash from the white segregationist base, they then amped up their rhetoric in order to uh, make and, and maintain their political careers, right? So what's so interesting about this period, and I'm, I'm sure it's not a coincidence that, of course, that's where television starts to come into play. And this idea is that we're having these sort of mediated realities sort of reflected at us and people are trying to construct and consciously sort of uh, sculpt how they're perceived by other people. We start seeing these sort of dueling performances between the sort of you know, two, two sides of this um, sort of civil rights battle. Yeah. And what's so important about your book is you talk about themes, historical themes, say the Fugitive Slave Acts, which were acts that essentially required whites to return the enslaved who had found their way to freedom back to their slave status and it required white complicity in it. Mm-hmm. What's important about that is not just that moment in time, but that's really the origins of modern American 
policing. Mm. How is it that we have police today who behave as they behave in too many cases? Right. You say, well, what's the history of policing? And the history of policing is all bundled up with this Insurrection Act and slave codes and fear of response by the enslaved in a way that they never, ever acted in. And so it becomes very, a very important thread in understanding where we are today, right. I think. Right. No, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's definitely pretty fascinating to think about it because, you know, I know we're having a lot of debates over the, how history impacts current events, etc. But when you actually delve into the history, there's no way you can't see this sort of thematic content sort of rearing its ugly head over and over again through different guises, right? So, you know, before the modern day police force, we did have these posses who sort of civilians who could be uh, called forth, you know, by their local sheriff in order to help enforce the law, right? But there's this idea of the the white citizen, particularly the white male able-bodied, you know, person from uh, in a particular age range, but not even necessarily, I think, on an, in an unofficial capacity. So at once, uh, yes, being a civilian and a citizen, but on the other hand, being a sort of lawman and enforcer. And the dynamic between, say, black, white, enslaved, and quote-unquote free white citizen like that was the dynamic in which these sort of law enforcement sort of uh, systems arose. So there shouldn't be any mystery in the fact that we're we're seeing similar and um, very familiar tendencies in the sort of current day police force that we might might have seen during these earlier times in history. I think what's interesting about this book, though, is that there is a more of an emphasis on the military than the police per se, and. I'm glad you raised that because I, there was a time where I thought and wondered, is there a way to, to sort of incorporate a, some sort of contemplation on sort of state and local policing, although it does it does come up from time to time. Um, but in the end, you know, it became clear to me that from the perspective of just the regular civilian, the layperson, in your perspective, do you really see much of a difference between uh, the National Guard or, you know, sort of the army being deployed and militarized police, right? So police are, are outfitted currently in military uh, armament, right? So like they have tanks, they have a, a lot of many pol- police uh, departments around the country do have this sort of artillery that you would normally see uh, outfitting uh, a military, like a sort of military sort of, you know, cavalry, right? So there seems to be a sort of blurring, if not in their official capacities, but at least in the way that they seem that they can be sort of experienced by the regular person who's not used to seeing standing troops around their corner, right? Yes. And I think, sadly, they're used more to suppress than to enforce rights. Interesting last point, and then we'll get to the conclusion because we are running out of time, but Another thread that's so interesting is that we talked about the KKK acts of 1871 under under Grant, which were those acts that were used by Grant, maybe reluctantly, but used nonetheless to enforce the rights of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment and to put an end to the Klan. And in the lawsuits that Eric Swarwell, the congressman from California, has brought against Trump and his associates for the insurrection on January 6th, they're using those same statutes, the 1871 KKK Act, in order to say that they, Trump and his and his associates, suppressed their rights that they were entitled to under the KKK Act of 1871. Right. Yes, and I think even the ACLU and some chapter of the ACLU and a chapter of the NAACP either one or both, definitely the NAACP, have also talked about similar suits under the KKK Act with respect to the Trump actions, right? So it's like that history is so present, right? And that's, and I think that's what's been so rewarding and looking through all of it, you know, through the lens of the Insurrection Act, is that, again, progress is not some sort of linear process, but rather that it's, it seems to have been like a series of advancements and retrenchments. And history 
ends up seeming more cyclical than some sort of process that's like marching us forward to our destiny in a straight line. And then you just see this sort of recurring sort of not only just themes, but like with the KKK acts, you see these sort of rec- this recurring legislation coming up in sort of substantially similar <laughs> uh, situations. One thing I will say about that, like there was an incident, the I think the enforcement acts were used to to help resolve, but there was a contested election, it's a gubernatorial election between Kellogg, I think William Kellogg and John McEnry, and this was in Louisiana. And Kellogg was a Republican, you know, at that time, you know, 1870s and was declared the, the winner of the election. But, you know, John McEnry challenged that result. And then they ended up uh, engaging in this ongoing battle where, you know, during which at some point both claimed that the state government was, should be run under them. And then John McEnry gathered together a militia and tried to overtake an, an arsenal and take over the New Orleans police force in order to force his hand and sort of take sole control of the state government. And that was, uh, that resulted in deployment um, under the KKK Act by Ulysses S. Grant. Yeah, it's similar in a sense to the response uh, to Nat Turner and some of the other whiskey revolts and other similar revolts. You write in conclusion, and I'll let you take us out on this. I think what you hinted at, but I'll say it as you wrote it. You wrote this history that we're talking about as seen through the lens of the Insurrection Act is a series of advancements and retrenchments in a warlike context. And the use of the act as an interpretive pendulum ultimately reflects the precarious status of black citizens in the United States. Right. So, I'm, so again, so at the founding of the country, you know, the term black citizen was obviously an oxymoron. So as we've discussed in conjunction with white fear, we have this enduring stigma of the, the now black citizen as a potential insurrectionist, right? So I argue in the book effectively that this dual status continues to sort of be reflected uh, despite the fact that we're past this antebellum period. So there's this sort of pre-citizen status of being both person and property. And then that sort of translates through the invocation of the Insurrection Act as, as being both ward and enemy of the state, right? Both object and subject of the law. So this sort of oscillation of the act largely to use to suppress race riots on the one hand or enforce civil rights on the other, kind of lends credence to this idea of like the black citizen as a sort of liminal figure, right? And you did mention Katrina, we didn't get a chance to talk about that too much, but uh, the short the short story is that George W. Bush threatened to invoke the Insurrection Act in response to the Hurricane Katrina crisis in New Orleans, where, you know, of course it's a mostly African-American, we have mostly African-American residents and through proliferation of rumor that turned out to be exaggerated and largely false, they were sort of framed as rioters who were going to take advantage of the post-storm setting in order to enact violence or, you know, loot and whatnot. But in any event, he, he didn't end up doing that. But this sort of liminal status of the Black citizens sort of clear in that case as well, where they were perceived as both rioting but, and, and relief-seeking. They were resident, but then also called refugees. So there's this sort of stigma of the Black citizen not only being a potential insurrectionist, but also not even being a real citizen at all. So in the book I refer to, it's a, this image uh, that the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein brings up. It's where you can see an image, and depending on how you're seeing it, it could either be a duck or a rabbit. They call it the duck rabbit because, you know, it's, you're either seeing the, the bills of the duck for you could be the ears of the rabbit for someone else, right? So... I'd say there's like a similar phenomenon occurring with the Black citizen who's in some way both citizen and non-citizen, right? And I would say like this sort of double vision is sort of the inverse of W.E.B. Du Bois's concept of double consciousness, right? So maybe this double consciousness that Black people have, right, is simply the internalized double vision of those that are perceiving us. And which is why the lens of the Insurrection Act is such a good lens to look at this duality because really, as you said, it's in the eye of the beholder. What is one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. One person's status as an insurrectionist versus 
the state in position of its authority on non-instruction is in the eye of the beholder. And unfortunately, those who have wielded power for too long have had a lens that was clouded by this terrible history that we've been talking about. Exactly. So the book is called Insurrection, Rebellion, Civil Rights, and the Paradoxical State of Black Citizenship. It's an important read, Hawa, and I'm very grateful for you to have written it and for taking the time to speak with me today on That Said with Michael Zeldin. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun, and I was really happy to discuss the book with you. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.